The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome everybody to episode 9 of the Ascent of Board Games. We're almost in the double digits. This is Brian, and as you may be able to tell from listening to me, I am getting over a cold, cough, sore throat thing. So I'm going to talk less, but I am happy to be here hosting along with my fabulous co-hosts. I'm Michael, and much like Brian, I'm also getting over a cold. Joe here, obviously. Uh, and Jason. And Frank, and yeah, my voice is always shot. It's all uh, Frank's death metal uh, screaming in his band, so. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. He's just hardcore rocking it out all the time. Let's talk about board games. What a weird concept. I can't help but notice that sitting on your pile of games over there is a copy of the Barbara Cartland game. What of it, Mike? I found a great deal on an unopened copy. And from a listener, I received a request to get a copy so that they could play it. So there. Ex- I did it all for our listeners. If you find any other copies, I actually kind of want one. The last time I looked when we played, it was like $100. Like, yeah, totally. I got it for like 35 shit. That's not bad. Completely unopened. So clearly, somebody is not listening to our episode or they would know that that is the new hotness. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait. So that was an unopened yeah. copy? Yeah, yeah, Wow. Yeah, I immediately tore the plastic off to see what it looked like on the inside. You deflowered your virginal <laughs> copy of the game. Oh, speaking of which. That's a segue that makes me very uncomfortable. No, no, well. So I look back on the notes that you had for our Barbara Cartland special edition uh, one week. Valentine's Day episode. Yeah, Valentine's Day episode. And you had links to the books that you could purchase online. The art for the books is amazing. I'm going to print those out and put them in the game. So I'm like, here's your character. Here's the story you are doing. Enjoy that. Now you have a mind picture for and it. And here's an Amazon link to go buy a copy of the book afterwards. <laughs> well, that's Please. implied. Are you planning on pimping out your Barbara Cartland I am definitely game? pimping out my Barbara Cartland. Don't I... judge. <laughs> well, just make sure you add those resources to Board Game Geek so other people can do it too. <laughs> I'm surprised that one hasn't shown up on the hot list on Board Game Geek since we did our episode. I'm, I'm very True. disappointed. So this month, we are here to talk about dungeon crawls, and this is one of those genres that seems simple. Hey, it's games about going into dungeons and fighting stuff. Turns out, we spent a lot of time figuring out what constitutes a dungeon crawl versus an adventure game versus a skirmish game. So, Mike, you want to tell us about what our conclusions were about those? Well, yeah, so we we wanted to lay down a couple of ground rules for what we're going to include into this episode. And the first one that we all kind of agreed on was that there is a confined space in which the game takes place on which characters have tactical movement. This is a pretty tried and true aspect of all of the games that we're going to talk about today. None of them really stray that far from that aspect of the mechanic. And I think they all have some sort of modular board in the sense that you're taking rooms or components and laying them out in different layouts. Right. Some sort of variability within the map. The second rule that we came up with is that there must be some sort of character progression, either through XP that you can spend to increase the powers of your character, or some sort of equipment that gets better as you go. Something that makes you more powerful at the end of the game than you were at the beginning of the game. As usual, we have a list of stuff that we think talks about the development of the dungeon crawl. Before we get to board games proper, we at least need to give a nod to the grandpappy of them all, which is a little game called Dungeons & Dragons that you may have heard of. 
So it originally came out in 1974 by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson from Tactical Studies Rules, better known as TSR. Basically, they had been playing for a while with a slightly older medieval warfare miniatures game called Chainmail. And then somebody had the clever idea of saying, hey, what if we each just play one guy but this one guy has special powers and maybe he has magic and they can fight against monsters rather than just other dudes with swords. And what if one guy tells the story and the other guys are playing their individual characters on a map? And so, as you're probably aware if you're listening to this podcast, so much of modern fantasy gaming stems from that D&D well. It is a dungeon crawl. It's not a board game, although the earlier editions were a lot closer to board games than what we have now. I think we need to take a moment to acknowledge that that was really the driver behind a lot of the ideas of you have fighters and wizards and, uh, sorry, magic users and elves and dwarves, which were classes back (laughs) in the day. And you go into a dungeon and you fight monsters and you collect gold and you level up and you have hit points. And that all started with D&D. So tip of the hat to uh, to Gaiax and Arneson for getting us started. And D&D 5th edition, pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the six people on the planet who like D&D 4th edition. I don't have a problem with Oh, do edition. you need a bunch of D&D 4th edition stuff? No, I have it all. <laughs> I just don't have anyone to play it with. But that's fine. I'm used to that. We've all moved on. I <laughs> mean, you can't play that solo? <laughs> I could. <laughs> I choose not to. This is back in the days oh, yeah. where, like, you cough and a wizard drops dead. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, God, somebody looked at the wizard. Get him a potion. Well, I mean, oh, my God, I rolled one hit point. <laughs> yes. When you were a first-level wizard, you had two spells. And when you cast those, you were done. Mm-hmm. No, you could throw darts. <laughs> Maybe a light crossbow if you were lucky. All right, anyway, enough D&D. We're obviously enormous role-playing game nerds. But on to actual board games. So D&D, like we mentioned, came out in 1974, and there were certainly some board game crossovery things that happened in that period that were trying to sort of encapsulate the D&D experience in board game form. The first one that we think was really successful was HeroQuest. And that was the first one that hit all of our elements. I know of, you know, Death Trap Dungeon, a couple games, Death Maze by SPI that tried it. But the weird part is that's 14 years. Nobody really got it right. Yeah. At least not in a way that has persisted into modern memory until HeroQuest came. Oh, no. Even old memory? No. I couldn't find a thing. I spent forever looking. So I'll never forget the tiny little furniture that came yes. with this That game. was great. Yes. Like little plastic end caps and cardboard connective tissue. There was a one that was a desk, and it had a specific piece you put on top of the desk. It was a separate piece. It was like yeah. scales or something, if yes, I remember correctly. Yes, yes, yes. You're like... That's so detail-oriented for no reason. I love it. It's so great. Yeah, I don't actually have the game anymore, but I think I still have a lot of that furniture. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I, honestly, I would just repurpose it for, for other games. Like, yeah, it's no, absolutely. so well done. Mantic. I've also reused the miniatures for other things. Mantic, with their Dungeon Saga game, added a ton of furniture, and now they're doing things called terrain crates that are just furniture. Oh, yes. Yes, I and saw those. Buckets and buckets of that. Yeah. Well, clearly, that's going back to HeroQuest. So let's officially talk about, talk about Hero We Quest. just want to talk about it. I know. 1989 release from Milton Bradley, designed by Stephen Baker. And it was, again, trying to encapsulate D&D. You had one person who was acting as the dungeon master, and then multiple other players who had their individual characters, and moved their miniatures around on the little dungeon, and off you went. Yeah, it was, what, barbarian, wizard, elf and, elf dwarf. and dwarf in the initial set. And you had a little character sheet, you could buy equipment. So it really did do the whole miniature role-playing game thing. And this was a collaboration they did with Games Workshop. 
which nowadays I can't imagine happening. (laughs) Yeah, it's so weird. So weird. Yeah, and a lot of the miniatures I remember there are things that wound up later in Warhammer Fantasy or 40k. I mean, one of the bad guys was a Chaos Warrior. Yep. That same miniature has showed up in a bunch of games and a bunch of art over the years. Don't forget the bondage gargoyle. (laughs) (laughs) Look, he's he's ubiquitous. He's been busy since 1989. Compared to games now, they came in different colored plastics Mm -hmm. for the different types of enemies. The heroes were red, the skeletons were white along with the zombies, the orcs and the Femirs, Femirs, they were green, like... Mm -hmm. I wish games would do that now because, like, I have tons of miniatures games, all gray plastic. I'm like, okay, this is really bad with hate, for example. All of the miniatures are giant buff dudes with tons of spiky bits everywhere. They're all in gray plastic. I'm like, mm, which guy is which? I don't know. <laughs> I think the assumption is you need to paint them. They did put colored bases on them, so, like, you can match them up that way. But, like, if you're just glancing down, you're just like, I don't know what this guy does. He's just another spiky berserker dude. Like, they, they all look the same. Well, and the, the miniatures came pre-assembled, right? Yeah. And they were one yeah. piece. They were molded yeah. plastic. Was there one that wasn't? I thought there was the one. Gargoyle the gargoyle had his head come off. That's, that's true. Yeah. That's there true. was one little, that didn't. Yeah, and you didn't even need glue. You just kind of press it mm-hmm. on. Yeah, I'd say those miniatures still hold up today. Like, if you look at, I want to say it's the orcs. They have a little finely detailed chainmail on them, if I remember correctly. And you're just like, oh, yeah. it's, they're pretty it's decent. It's not as fine a detail as you'd get in a proper miniature game. But honestly, for the age. And oh, for yeah. the price point, those were super good miniatures. Yeah, it was like 20, 25 bucks. I cannot, yeah. yeah. It's, it, and there's a ton of, I mean, the miniatures, the furniture. What I really liked about the furniture is like they were plastic, but they also had cardboard bits that were colored that really made them pop on the yeah. board. It was incredible. Yeah, even the little doorways. Yeah. You know, you have to track. <laughs> yes, was, uh... the open and shut doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the game had a ton of attention to detail, just a ton of attention to yeah, detail. It was very overproduced for the time. But actually, I mean, it had all the elements you're looking for. You had a GM. You mean uh, Zargon, the evil sorcerer? You also, had yes. a hand of level up. You had a shop where you can go and spend coins that you got mm-hmm. printed on the insert, but you still could buy equipment and such. And had campaigns. You had one campaign of 10 scenarios in the book like yeah. and then two other scenarios uh, or two other expansions mm-hmm. with 10 session scenarios and then you had the elf pack and the wizard pack or something uh, the barbarian i think had barbarian its pack, pack yeah. and elf pack yeah, yeah now there's a ton of expansions some of which were only released in europe which makes them stupid expensive mm-hmm. here first of all i'd love to know going back in time how my parents ever let me get this game like i don't know how this happened like my parents bought us plenty of board games but this seems way out there for them <laughs> like <laughs> i don't know how that happened i'm very very thankful it did but uh, it, it's Was surprising. there a cool uncle or a clueless grandmother you maybe know, who's not going to we had a cool uncle that brought my brother laser tag and made me super jealous. But uh, I think this came from my parents. I just don't know when. But anyhow, some friends and I have been playing through the original scenarios probably since I was in college. And we finally finished it. <laughs> wow. We played through all of that. We've been playing a lot of the expansions. I think we're actually done with everything except the European exclusive stuff. And it's still very engaging. Like, it definitely has some mechanics that have not aged well, like roll to move. She's like, oh, really? I have to roll a d6 to move spaces? That's never fun. Let's use that as a segue to talk about the actual mechanics of the tactical movement in this game. I mean, did it do anything groundbreaking? I mean, I don't know that it was groundbreaking in and of itself. It kind of was the first one that I think successfully got the square by the square thing D&D yeah. in a box. Now, it didn't have facing. You couldn't move through, so you could bottle up doors. Yeah, you basically have to do that for a lot of the rooms because, like, you just get uh, <laughs> surrounded by monsters. Like, all right, we're just going to fight in the doorway for the next 12 turns until I finally kill everything. <laughs> right, barbarian, get in there, do your thing. Or yep. uh, be cheap and get, was it the long sword and attack diagonally through the door? <laughs> diagonally, what? <laughs> or get him down a long hallway with the infinite range crossbow. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we, we used every single stupid exploit and trick we could to get through it. But it's got some aged concepts, but it, it's still a blast to play. And uh, I loved it as a child, and I still love it playing now. Come to think of it, it was also one of the first games I've seen that had custom dice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're not wrong. Yeah, and yeah, there yeah. are wooden dice. They're wooden dice. It's so oh, crazy. Yeah. And yeah, you'll see, though, custom dice are a thing in a lot of just Ameritrash games. But yeah, I think everybody who played that back in the day has fond memories of it because it wasn't like any of the other board games you got. It was really closer to a role-playing experience you yeah. know, without having to build a custom world. What about character progression? Mostly through equipment. Yeah, there wasn't leveling up in the traditional sense, but you could get better gear. Yeah, Battle Axe gives you four dice to throw instead of two, that sort of thing. I tried to find sales numbers on it, and I couldn't because I was really curious. Like The fact that how many people I know that aren't necessarily board gamers that had this game as children and remember it fondly it's a lot. Like, it seems to be a fair percentage of the people that were children at the time this came out experienced it in one way or the other. It must have done fairly well for Milton Bradley. And the fact that they had multiple expansions, that wasn't really a thing. Like, this is the first dungeon crawl I ever played, obviously, <laughs> since there really weren't any other ones. The first game I ever played that I had an expansion for, I had the um, Return of the Witchlord expansion that gave you yeah. a whole bunch more undead. Unfortunately, apparently I was super organized as a kid before, too, where I took all of my undead white-colored plastic minis and put them in that box so they'd all be organized, and then I promptly lost that box. Don't. So my set over there is missing all the freaking skeletons and zombies and mummies. I talked to a guy from Hasbro who was there at the time, and he said it was quite successful, but I didn't get numbers from him Yeah, I, I had to have been, right? Like, yeah, it, totally. it, it's so there was so much of it, and like so many people played it. You know, I wonder how much of that, though, is the fact that it had Milton Bradley's name on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm well, sure yeah. that... That helped. They were one of the two game manufacturers in the U.S. functionally at that point. This would have been in Toys R Us, yeah. where all the other, you know, game of life and whatever the games would have. And when you're at a certain age and you see a big box on the shelf that has dudes with swords, when I was a kid, that hit me in all of the demographic spots. I want that thing. And I think there was an awful lot of that going around. It was extremely well-timed in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny to think, though, this game would be lost among the masses, oh, I sure. think, this day and age. This was in the day when you'd get maybe, I don't know, 20 new games coming out a year. Yeah. Most of them kids' games. Totally, yeah. Different it time. Was a bright spot. Yeah, it was, it was a very different world. And Trivial Pursuit owned the retail stores and that ilk, yeah. I think it's worth mentioning, obviously this game is very much beloved. I mean, we've been gushing about it for a couple minutes now. There was an attempt to create a 25th anniversary edition on, um, it's a Spanish website called Lozano's. My friend Joe, because all Joes love dungeon crawl games. That's true. We have established that as fact. Um, Genetic, I think. (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, he backed it, and it funded on December 25th, 2013. Still not out yet. Hmm. Oh, they tried to kickstart it, and Kickstarter kicked them off because, you know, they didn't technically have have rights. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, so they went on this other site. It got funded there. I did some looking. They're still active on the Board Game Geek forums as of a couple months ago where they were showing off a demo copy, but apparently it's like the same demo copy they've had for a couple of years. No, guys, we're totally doing this. Yes, yeah, so if you go to their website, their last update was April 2nd. And just to clarify, we're recording this on March 24th, so when Joe says April 2nd, <laughs> that was 2018. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Which is it's a heartbreaker because, I mean, it looked like it'd be fun just to get the I mean, updated designs on some of the characters and see if they did any 
interesting changes to the the rule sets, but I don't know if that's ever going to release, but it was worth mentioning. And of course, it does have a lot of fans. I did run across a website called Ye Old Inn that has gorgeous yeah. scans of everything from the original sets, even the sets that you really and can't I've find. I've got a friend who has like 54 copies of Hero Quest. <laughs> so. Wow. Is this Dan? Of course. Okay. The thing is, he bought a truck full of I, I was going to say. <laughs> and just happened to have 54 Hero Quest it was a, a, it was a He bought a full truckload. Truck Give me a truck. It was, just, he, it was like $3,000. And it was an entire third of a full shipping truck pallet. of games. Just random games? Yes. Just, okay. Here's what was in the truck when the distributor this, went out of business. This sure sounds like this, it fell off the truck. Some, sort of this is some guy who collected <laughs> just games. So it took about four years before the, the success of HeroQuest kind of caught on with the rest of the toy companies. And then everyone did a dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. Literally, from the, the whole 1993 through 1995... I see about 20, 25 of them. I've got a fair number of them. Uh, one we're going to bring from this time period is Mutant Chronicles Siege of the Citadel by Pressman Toy Company, designed by Richard Borg, uncredited, of course. The story I got about this one from Richard is that they gave him miniatures and a limit on components and said, sign whatever you want, we're going to print it. <laughs> and he took it and did a dungeon crawl and did a really amazing, interesting dungeon crawl with it everyone gets two heroes which is still kind of an unusual thing doom troopers but there's also a weird competitive cooperative campaign there is only one winner for a mutant chronicles campaign players take turns playing the dark legion yes uh this is by the way based on a long-standing swedish role-playing game of course uh, it is. <laughs> the role-playing game's still going strong today. Really? And Mutant Chronicles Siege of the Citadel just got a Kickstarter. That's I was going to say, I thought yeah. I saw something about them bringing it back. You would basically level up for things you killed as well as completing mission objectives. So all the heroes are definitely pushing toward a primary mission objective, but may have side mission objectives of their own. And they definitely want to kill Steel because oh, yes. the actual kill gives you experience points. This means that they aren't quite friendly and will get in each other's way which is probably good because the thing is skewed toward the heroes if they were playing strictly cooperatively it doesn't work <laughs> they'll just overrun now you can't actually attack each other i don't think no you oh uh, you can i mean but you lose i think experience. there's like collateral damage isn't there like if you throw a grenade that accidentally lands next to the other player oh yeah true <laughs> And there's some of the cart you get power cards that can do something good for you or something really nasty <laughs> to one of your one of your friendly heroes or not so friendly heroes. So yeah, there's a definite kind of passive aggressive thing going there. So it's like a what a ten or twelve game campaign? Yeah. It must be ten because there's five PC Factions. groups. Yeah. And each game, one of them is going to be their heroes will be sitting it out and they'll be playing the Dark Overlord. And they get experience for how right, well to, they do as the Dark Overlord. Crew. So they're certainly motivated to fight yeah. hard against the good guys. Well, yeah, and that's brilliant, the fact that your XP as hero is tied into how well you do as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, when, it's, when you're playing, well, you do in, yes. in whatever role you're in. If you're, you know, you're getting experience by killing things, but if you're the bad guy, you're getting experience by defeating heroes that will apply to your team. I'm a little sad nobody's taken this idea and run with it. I know it's completely unusual and a very good game. I mean, yeah, you know, I've started two campaigns of this and never finished it, but now I think I may have access to the right people to actually finish a campaign of this. True. And I've got some house rules that kind of help that. I don't know how much made it into the Kickstarter. One thing I do think that rotating Dark Legion player really helps. 
I know people that refuse to play one versus many games, period, because they don't like, you know, one person being stuck playing as the bad guy or them wanting to be the bad guy and never getting the opportunity because yeah. someone else has taken it over. So it's nice that it kind of switches. And yeah, I've never seen that before anywhere else. Doesn't it also have randomized turn order? Like you flip over a token, yes. which is also interesting, especially since it's competitive because you never know when you're actually going to get to trigger as your, your two Doom Troopers. Yeah. And of course, later in the campaign, I've seen cases where, you know, the Dark Overlord just targets one player. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there is definitely a, a, oh, yeah. and a reason to beat game. on the leader. In the line with the sort of hero quest thing, it didn't have furniture as such, but it had a big sort of cardboard set of arches in the middle of the board. Which like raised stairs and everything for that top center board. Yeah. Yep, and big chunky plastic miniatures. No, no, we have to mention, I looked it up because it was so amazing, the uh, Ezogul. Yes, it's the like Ezogul. It's a horse guy with chainsaws. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like something straight out of Doom. It's oh, it's, a, it's awesome. It's a, it's a space mutant centaur demon thing. <laughs> oh, totally. There are a couple of the hero characters that look somewhat similar to Space Marines. Oh, totally. I looked that what one do up you too. Mean, similar Brian? to, but legally distinct from. Ah. Yeah, specifically it was the Bauhaus was a faction that had that guy who has a skull Space Marine helmet, basically. A chaplain? Yeah, yeah. He looks like a chaplain. And it's like, oh, oh my. Okay. <laughs> well, you guys, uh, just paint him a different color. Can we talk about the pegboards that were oh, used yeah. to track your characters because those things were classic. We don't get games of pegboard trackers anymore. It's funny. It's also and like good. It's also mm. like a high score tracker because you can see which ones are punched out. Yeah. See how far someone made it as that faction. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> but anyway, you level up, you buy cool things like rocket launchers and uh, you fight big bad guys and it's tremendous fun. There's not a lot of plot going on, but uh, if you want to talk about plot, then clearly the next game we need to talk about is Dragon Strike. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> it has all the plot. All the plot. I saw the video. There's oh, the a video, video that explains so all the plot. The, the reason we're talking about this is mostly that video. That's exactly It'll be true. in the show notes. Go watch it. Just we'll wait. One note, the warrior in that video is an American gladiator. So there we go. <laughs> no one remembers American gladiator, but... Uh, I do. I do. Or never Do you mind. remember the original American gladiator? Probably not. No. Dragon Strike, do you mean generic fantasy name, the game? <laughs> Pretty much. I do. Released in 1993 by Bruce Naismith. It was actually TSR. What? It's a TSR game that looks like a ripoff of a TSR game. <laughs> it, does. it does. Oh, the irony. Well, because it's it's a TSR game that is a ripoff of HeroQuest. Yeah. And so they were like, well, let's just rip it off then. Let's just use all the fantasy stuff we let's have. Let's rip off what they ripped off from us. Right, exactly. And it's like, it doesn't have anything really unique to uh, add uh, to the genre. That's not true. Ex it's, uh, except for the amazing video. No, there's, no, a, no. Couple, there's a couple of mechanics okay, they added. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. So my friend Joe. The other Joe. The other Joe that also loves uh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced that it's just Arjo dressed in different clothing. Oh, that that is fascinating. He's got a family, though. That's that's really going deep for that, <laughs> that role. I can commit to a bit, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> Your role playing goes to the next level. <laughs> no, so it added kind of a timing mechanism. In traditional hero quests, the heroes can just kind of dilly-dally and, like, wait for the conga line of enemies to walk down a hallway and kill them one at a time. In Dragon Strike, you can't do that because there's a constant timer that's ticking down to when the dragon gets released. And now the Overlord has a dragon that is very, very powerful and difficult to deal with. 
that's kind of pushing you forward to do it as quickly as possible. On top of that, it also has a mechanism where you're doing ability checks. Like, hey, I want to jump across this chasm or something. And you, you're doing basically like an agility check, which does not exist at all in here. Right. And the cool thing is you use different sizes of dice, right? The, since the thief is really good, for example, at feats of dexterity, she rolls a d12, whereas the fighter's less good. He rolls a d8 or a d6 or whatever. So I think it only goes down to d8, actually. I think you're right. I think it's d8s, d10s, and d12s. The scenarios themselves are also a big step ahead of hero quest i mean there's like so you know interaction with npcs dialogue mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you can talk to them that's right cutscenes and things sorry you just reminded me of something <laughs> so we were playing through it and we were trading off who was being the overlord because we all wanted to try at uh controlling the dragon and the scenario i was playing was like in a castle or something and i had like a it was like a troll or something a really nasty monster and uh hero opens up the door and he finds a troll he's like oh he shuts the door there is no mechanism for the monsters to open doors. <laughs> I was like, wait, are, are, are you kidding me? They can't open a door in their own castle? That troll died in that room. <laughs> well, I just like the idea I hope you're of happy. a hero open the door. He's a snarling, nasty troll. He's like, nope, shuts the door. Do not Walks walk. away. Oh, I was so salty about it. I was like, what do you mean I can't open the freaking door? The board design in Dragon's Rag is actually really nice. Right? Yeah. It's like it doesn't have as nice of onboard components like the furniture in Hero Quest, but the board designs kind of evoke that, right? Like they yeah, have totally. a lot of detail to them. Desks and tables and beds and all that kind of stuff. In yeah, the, most in the of it takes rooms. place on that castle, I mm-hmm. remember, or yep. the flip side of that castle. Yep. But yeah. Well, and in true TSR fashion, like that map is solidly locked into a one inch by one inch grid. Oh yeah. And there were four maps in total, right? There was the caverns, yeah. the city, the wilds, and the castle. Correct. And they're all gorgeous looking and they all have lots of cool D&D art additions, right? Like the one in the castle has like the dragon like jumping out of the water coming to get you and stuff like that. And we see that time pressure pop up in some of the dungeon delve games that are coming up, especially present day. So is this the first time we've seen a dungeon delve with that time pressure on it? That was. And that was a big flaw of Hero Quest is that, oh, crap, let's spend like five turns sitting outside the door and nothing happens. No wandering monsters, no nothing. Guys, I I don't want to be playing this game for six hours. Can you just (laughs) open the door? No, playing Hero Quest as adults is really bad because adults are super cautious because they know what can happen. So it's like, first thing you do, move forward, search for traps. Okay, no traps. Then we search for treasure. Okay, get a treasure. Move into the room. Okay, what monsters are here? There's three monsters. Okay, I back up. I stand in the doorway. Kill a monster. Next turn. Kill a monster. Next turn. Kill a monster. It's like, oh my God, come on, let's just go. And uh, get to the point where like when I was playing the wizard, I would just kind of screw around with it because the wizard's got this awesome spell where you can walk through stone. And you're like, mm, I don't really feel like dealing with any of this. <laughs> just walk, walk through the wall and go deal with other stuff. So the other advancement we didn't talk about is in Dragon Strike. There are five hero types. They add the thief. (laughs) It's warrior, wizard, thief, helper, dwarf. It's like such a direct rickoff. It's crazy. TSR actually did try to do kind of box games over time, but they were really mostly D&D in a box Mm -hmm. and really kind of fudge the rules. With Dragon Strike, they really got a structured rule set that felt like a board game. So, since I'm apparently the dungeon crawl uh, expert on the 90s, there's a game which I think everyone's heard of, but very few people played, especially at this table, <laughs> called Warhammer Quest, which is that weird slice of RPG board game. And this is Warhammer Quest 1995 Games Workshop, designed by Andy Jones. This was Games Workshop's last big game. It was also the genesis of the big, giant, 
box. You got a ton of plastic. When, and when you say their last game, it was their last board game function. They did a few board games for a while and then just took a hiatus to do miniatures games forever. Which worked out okay for them for a long time. But uh, there was a lot of things different about this one. It came with two rule books. It also came with tiles, modular Ooh. tiles you can put together to make a real dungeon. Mm. Oh yeah, there was a, like T-junctions and like narrow hallways and... Totally. Warhammer Quest is so confusing that even in Board Game Geek, there are images that are misfiled under different things. <laughs> yep. Like one of the Warhammer Quests is clearly pictures of cards for 40K, right? They got rocket launchers and giant cannons. And Jason, I feel your pain already. I have yeah, looked for like five seconds. I already feel your pain. But yeah, the basic Warhammer Quest was a big two foot by one foot by, you know, four or five inch box. I mean, it was the genesis of the big giant coffin boxes from Fantasy Flight. And you got maybe 40 minis. Well, they came in sprues. They weren't assembled. Sprues, cut, assemble. You had to do a little bit of putting together. They wanted to be painted. And it was actually also a co-op game. Uh, Really one of the first times that had happened. The game has a card deck that generates the dungeon as you lay it out. And what's also interesting about this is the structure of the game decides what the final room is. So as you enter the final room, you roll a D66. A a what? A D66. That is, roll a six-sided die, interpret one as the 10 digits. Oh, sure. So it's like percentile dice, but with D6s, yeah. Yeah, that's an old I I know the system. I've never heard it called that before. Oh, D66s? Yeah. And then you had a deck that would determine, you know, what tile you were playing up until you got to the final room when you fought the boss. And the idea is that you would just keep playing this. There was miniature kind of AI. You Basically, the monsters all rushed the closest person. In between adventures, you would go back to town. You'd have an event in town. And then you'd roll a new dungeon, slowly level up your characters from one to six. But Warhammer Quest also included a campaign book that was a full light RPG. It included a GM moderated dungeon as well as extra encounter tables, stats for pretty much every Games Workshop miniature to be just added to the game as a new monster. A bestiary of 50 or 60 monsters in that. It's fascinating that they included the 1v mini aspect of the dungeon delve as a completely optional portion yeah. method of play rather than the full co-op. Yeah, but in which... really it wasn't a 1v mini. I mean, while you have the set of rules, really it wasn't against. It was a GM, right. you know, running sure. the game. And it looks like from what little I was able to find out about it, because this game's very difficult to find any information about. You have your traditional barbarian wizard, Dwarf and Elf. Totally. The same as always. It looks like we lost the thief from the last game we were talking about. Yeah, he was just a special guest star. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're sliding backwards here. Started her acting career, I think, is what happened mm, based yes. off that video. But I do think, from what I was able to see in the rules, it looks like they played a little differently. For example, at the beginning of the turn, the wizard generates power, and they're rolling to see if they generate an event from an yeah. event card. And then I think the warrior gets to attack before the monsters, which is earlier than the other heroes get to Correct. attack. So there's some asymmetry built into the yeah, characters. And the characters are more asymmetric than most games. I think there are feats as well as a lot of equipment. And you got to keep all your equipment hmm. between adventures. That's kind of cool because like up until this point, most of the characters are numbers with maybe some unique powers. Mm-hmm. So I think this is the first time we've really seen in the Dungeon Delve category a game that has like truly differentiating qualities of each of the characters. Character powers. Yeah, they're not as elaborate as some of the asymmetric stuff we talked about sure. a few episodes ago, but they're there. Now, one thing we didn't really mention as we were going through here is there was uh, the same year that Hero Quest came out, there was also an advanced Hero Quest. Yes, which I true. think shares a lot of the DNA. It shares with almost Warhammer all Quest. the DNA based yeah. on looking at 
board game geek. You know, so it's, it's still literally, the it's literally assembly. marked as re-implements. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because that one was also just Games Workshop. So basically they sort of did the initial groundwork with Milton Bradley where I get the impression that it was mostly Games Workshop doing the miniatures and Milton Bradley doing the gameplay. And then Games Workshop said, oh, hey, we can do this and did an advanced version of it, which evolved into Warhammer Quest. Yeah, and really both of the sets of rules are descended from the Warhammer miniatures game. But really, Advanced Hero Quest was pretty limited and almost a skirmish game. There was, you know, one person playing a group of Skaven, another person playing a group of heroes, and you fought. Warhammer Quest really took it into the dungeon crawl with the co-op, the tiling rooms and everything. There is one other thing that Warhammer Quest does, which is kind of interesting. One person's dedicated to carrying the lantern. Anywhere beyond one space away from the lantern is basically dark. <coughs> and you start taking damage or get lost if you get more that than one space away. You might be eaten by a Gru. Yeah, we'll be talking about that later. Because, yeah. Uh, Shadows of Brimstone feels a lot like a set of house rules that started at Warhammer Quest and gradually evolved into its own game. Oh, we'll, we'll have things to say about Shadows of Brimstone in yeah. a little while. And then after Warhammer Quest, there was basically a dark time in terms of dungeon crawls. There were certainly some dungeon crawl games that came out in that period, but they were pretty much just rehashes or lesser imitations of most of the stuff that had gone before. And the next sort of big landmark in the dungeon crawl series was one of the first big fantasy flight games I'm aware of, which was Descent Journeys in the Dark, released in 2005, designed by Kevin Wilson. This was Fantasy Flight's attempt to sort of reinvigorate the whole dungeon crawl concept. Again, you had the sort of one versus many. You had the Dark Overlord and the, a group of heroes coming in to fight their monsters. There were particular objectives that you had in each mission. There were different versions of each monster. There was the basic version and a, a master version. One of the things they did that I thought was kind of interesting was basically the Dark Overlord would get points each turn that they could spend to either spawn more monsters or place traps or that kind of thing. And oh my god, so much stuff. Yes. That was a giant box full of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was doing the research for the first edition versus the second edition, there were a lot of people upset with how fewer models came with the second edition. Like, they felt like it got stripped out pretty, pretty bare compared to the original version. Yeah. I haven't played the original version, but... It did not go over well. For that was opinion. just update with Fantasy Flight's new sales model of expanding the hell out of their games. DLC. It's all about the DLC. I tried counting the number of expansions for, for <laughs> this second edition. I, I stopped because that, that way leads madness. Yeah. The first one had going for it, and actually the thing that's carried on through a lot of games, is that your attack, damage, and everything about the your strike it comes down to one roll so if you're making a range attack you have to roll numbers over to the distance to your target and your damage is on little symbols on the dice as well as like perks you get hitting and that stayed a staple of all of the descended games and i see that creeping into other things too uh madara uses a form of fascinating what is interesting though in the first edition the uh all the defense it's all static there's no yep. rolling defense dice in this which is a departure from previous dungeon crawls that we've been talking about because all the other dungeon crawls is okay you roll to hit and then the other person rolls to defend and see if they can roll the shield or whatever the shield equivalent is this one's just like your armor blocks two it just blocks two i think warhammer quest was a block as well oh, okay so it was static but yeah 
But still, uh, Descent in theory had much faster because you resolved everything on the roll of a die. But man, the balance in the first edition was weird. The It was easy for the game master to spawn monsters. Really easy. So what happened is you clogged up and you spent two hours moving like three squares forward. That was... <laughs> okay. So you're just running a gauntlet every mission, it sounds like. Correct. And yeah, there'd be tons of monsters on the board. And it'd be a slow push that felt more like a war game than a front. Yeah. Yeah. And this was also, I think, one of the first games in what has now become their fantasy universe. I think this and Runebound came out around the same time. Is Runebound the card version? No, no. Runebound was a big the adventure game. Guys, yeah. This is when they started building what would evolve into the fantasy flight. The fantasy Land universe. of Terranol. Yep. Right, so the thing where you can play a game of Rune War, and then when one of your heroes goes on a quest, you play a game of Runebound, and then when they go in a dungeon, you play a game of Descent. Right. Mostly so they can reuse art assets. <laughs> well, also, yes. Right. They are big fans of that. Well, yeah, and that thing is carried on forever. I mean, Legacy of Dragonhold is set in that universe. Yep. Yeah, Descent was the next evolution of the sort of big box one versus many thing. Where it really got interesting is with the release of the second edition in 2012, which basically became a lot more app-driven. I mean, we talked about this in our Batteries Included episode. Well, they really cleaned the second edition up. Like, mm -hmm. it was just a much smoother game experience. Um, they also took it out of the dungeon. So the second edition base set came with what are, in essence, outdoor dungeons. But, like... You could have missions that took place in a forest, and you would still have tiles that were grid-based, but you got some variety of scenery. Yeah, but also they made the dungeons a lot smaller. You know, two, three tiles, mm -hmm. playable in an hour and a half-ish. Yeah. And they reigned in the spawns. You can only, like, make one spawn a turn as the GM. Or there's a strong limit on that. I can't remember yeah. the exact details. Which is interesting because, like, I know some people that absolutely hated that about the second edition. I know some people who don't. So I'm familiar primarily with the second edition. I just finished with other Joe. <laughs> just finished another of uh, the base campaign from the core set. It was an overlord victory. Uh, <laughs> it was close, but it was an overlord victory. This edition seems like they added a couple of things to make the heroes more variable. So the heroes all have their own heroic feat that's usable once per mission. They added an experience system for adding skills, which apparently was lacking in the first one. Instead of using static values for defense, you now roll dice for defense, which I'm not a big fan of dice, so that's not, not as good <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but one thing I do like is as you're playing the scenarios, the outcome of one scenario will impact the setup for the next scenario in a lot of the cases. So it's there's some, hey, if you did really well in this one, maybe the next one will be a little easier for you, which adds some a little more depth to it. And they also had the idea of like these relics where if you accomplish this mission, the heroes win, they get the good version of the relic. If the overlord wins, he gets the bad version of the relic. It makes for more interesting choices because we came to points where we're like, well, we want to do this mission because this relic's really good for us. Oh, it's really, really good for the Overlord. We're not going to do that mission because if we lose, he's going to get that and wreck us. Mm -hmm. So um, that that's kind of an interesting way of instead of just, okay, do the next mission, it's the same setup every single time. Well, it's not that the scenarios impacted each other necessarily, but each scenario in the campaign book had two parts. And so your outcome sure. on part one would affect outcome yes. part two. They also added a whole sequence of things that you would do in between scenarios. Yeah, like you would encounters. go back to town and shop and then you'd have encounters along the roads, which I think added a little bit of flavor to the game that more heavily impacted the whole like this is set in Tiranoth, which I don't think had really been established 
during the first edition. The first release. one lets you shop in the middle of an adventure. You would open a town portal and mm-hmm. bop back to town, which meant you're kind of, you know, planning, going through all the stuff while everyone else is playing for a couple turns, which is just weird. Mm. The original game, it was the Overlord's goal was kill the heroes, period. That was yep. Their, yep. their entire purpose. In the second edition, they also have alternative objectives. For example, they might need to get a character off the board before the heroes kill him or a- acquire an object or prevent the heroes from acquiring an object. So there's a little more you know, interesting choices there as well instead of just murder everything all the time. And the scenario design in general is a lot better. Mm. And there's a lot more interesting. And both had expansions. <laughs> so I think the second many. ones have been generally higher quality in terms of the writing and detail. But they also released blister packs <sighs> that are nothing but bad guys or in a couple of heroes, which, you know, that goes back to just Fantasy Flight sale model of we're just going to take things that should have probably been included in the base game and just sell them on the side. Well, I would argue in defense of Fantasy Flight because they probably had when they were putting the base game out ideas for a dozen characters. But honestly, if they build those all in and include them, it makes the game bigger and more expensive and harder to market. I think they sell it, they see how it goes. And that is one thing that Fantasy Flight has never been shy about. If they have a game that is successful, they will keep selling you more of it until you stop buying it. Yep, absolutely. So as far as those blisters packs, they also did one upgrade, which is a set of cards, so you could keep the miniatures from first edition. Mm -hmm. They didn't replicate any of the characters or monsters from the first edition. And all of those little monster packs were basically the cards and the minis. Right. For those of us who had first edition, we just bought the cards and then took our minis over. And that was actually kind of a nice way of doing that. So we had all the monster Yeah, variants. they've been pretty good. They did a similar thing with Mansions of Madness. So it's, here's the new game and here's the stuff you need to use all your first edition stuff with it. And you know, I know we're going to be jumping out of order here, but we could almost do an entire episode on the evolution of the game of Descent by itself because they then later reskin this game in 2014 for the Star Wars Imperial Assault game, which is pretty much identical, except one major change is that they moved the auto miss from the attack dice to the defense dice, which the way that changes how the math of the combat system was fascinating. And I think they're now using a very similar system for their new Lord of the Rings game. Find a system and they're just going to use the same system going forward forever, right? (laughs) And they'll never give you enough dice. Part of the model as well. You can buy more. (laughs) You sure can. Or the digital version, which just strikes me as weird. None of these games will ever give you enough dice, ever. Just the way it works. I don't feel like Hero Quest didn't have enough dice. I don't remember. Because, like, I think the max dice you ever roll is, like, four. Yeah. I think you had enough dice in that one. That might be the one and only example. I think that's before they realized that people would buy aftermarket dice packs. And then after a few years, we actually come back full circle a little bit and we get not the first official D&D board game, but the first really successful D&D board game, which was Dungeons & Dragons Castle Ravenloft. It was actually the first of a series. There was Castle Ravenloft, Wrath of a Shardalon, The Legend of Drizzt. The first one came out in 2010 from Wizards of the Coast, signed by Rob Heinsu, Peter Lee, Mike Merles, and Bill Slavishek. This was based on 4th edition D&D and was basically a self-contained adventure. You had five or six classes available and the players are all cooperatively going into the dungeon to find their way to where they can find Strahd or whoever the boss is. The interesting thing is, well, there's a couple of interesting things about it. One is 
that it did have a leveling up system, but it was rather difficult to achieve. You could basically be level one or level two, and getting to level two required you to roll, I think, a natural 20 yes. at, yeah. at some crucial yeah. moment. No, I looked this up because I remember this pissing me off so much. <laughs> so the, the XP pool is, is all the heroes share XP. So you defeat monsters, you get XP. To level up, you have to roll a natural 20 on a disarm traps or a monster attack, and then you have to spend 5 XP. So those two conditions have to exist for that to ever happen. In all the times I've played this game, probably close to 20 times or so, well, this game system, I haven't mm -hmm. played Castle Ravenloft all that often, but I think I've leveled up once. Oh. Because, first of all, dice hate me. Right. Much as they hate Brian. Rolling a 20, when you have enough XP, those things never happen for me. So it's, it's so aggravating. To be fair... The change from first to second level isn't huge. Like, it's a stat bump functionally. But it is aggravating to know it's there. And, like, roll a 20 when you've got 4 XP. You're like, come on. <laughs> it's so close. Yeah, these games highly minimized the character progression aspect of a Dungeon yeah. Delve. Temple of Elemental Evil had an interesting legacy-ish thing going where, depending on how you did on a scenario, you would add cards to the pool of events which was kind of unusual were they good events you added treasures were good you added new treasures and things to the okay decks. all right and i believe the sets were interchangeable weren't they like you totally. could use yeah. monsters from the oh. wrath of a shardalon yeah it's been a game that's pretty hacked um there's a lot of user expansions and everything the, the bgg entries for those are pretty epic also the monsters were kind of AI driven. When you uncover a new tile, it'll basically indicate whether a monster is going to generate. And then you grab the card for that monster and then you are responsible for activating that monster when it's the monster's turn. Which is kind of cool because that keeps everybody kind of engaged. Let's say Frank drew a kobold and I drew a kobold. It's Frank's turn, the kobolds activate. I also activate my kobolds at the same time. So there's some interaction there, which kind of makes it interesting. But also on the monster card, it's basically a series of do the first one that applies. If there is a hero within range, attack them. If not, if you can move to where heroes within range, attack them. If not, move as close as you can to a hero or whatever. Which meant that guys who were archers would actually kind of run away from you, stay at range and try to peg you from distance. Uh, melee guys would charge, the crazy wizards would do crazy wizard crap. <laughs> and it's funny because I think after this game came out, Fantasy Flight tried to do something very similar with Descent. They actually made some fully cooperative Descent adventures, which were a precursor to the apps that are now sold with Descent's games. So it's just kind of interesting to see how these AI scripts started to become more and more common among Dungeon Delve games. But it's how you take a Dungeon Delve game and remove the GM so everyone is now playing together. In a lot of cases, that feels better in a board game format. There are a lot of people who much prefer cooperative games to competitive, even if it's one versus many. Well, especially like one versus many, right? Because now it's just like that one person is doing all the stuff and then you all have to know different rules. You're playing functionally different games at each other. And it's more, you know, antagonistic, right? right. You've got a group of people against one person and like I've seen hurt feelings and based on how badly it game might go oh when you've got a, a sort of overlord uh, player i'm still bitter about not getting my master's lightsaber in, uh, in the <laughs> imperial assault campaign but we've moved on you mean you don't like playing a jedi that's got a stick to hit people with <laughs> 
So a lot of these kinds of games depend on... The assumption is that the players have a lot of knowledge of the events that are happening. You have a knowledge of like, okay, hey, I'm fighting this thing. I kind of know what his defense is and what his attack is and how much health he has and what the effect we have to do to it is. When that is violated, the game becomes a lot harder, (laughs) is what we discovered. Mm -hmm. And that actually is an interesting tie-in to our next game on the list. Yeah, what happens when you don't know anything of what's going on? <laughs> Literally at all. You have no idea. Yeah. What if you're trapped in some sort of mansion and you're mad? <laughs> so uh, we got Mansions of Madness released in 2011 by Fantasy Flight Games by Corey. Uh, I hate Corey's last name. Kenetsia. I'm so sorry, Corey. I think what we're really hoping for is eventually we'll pronounce someone's name so badly that we can get them on the show. <laughs> yell at us. Yeah, yeah just yell at us. That'd be great. There was a first edition of this game, technically. Yeah. Technically. We should, we should talk about it. It was a one versus many. It was extremely complex and fiddly to set up. I mean, conceptually, it was really interesting because there were five or six scenarios available. And for each one, the GM, Overlord Keeper, could choose who the bad guy was and where they had hidden the what's it that you need to solve the thing and what their final objective is. And depending on that combination of things, you would lay out different sets of cards in different rooms and clues and locked doors. The problem is, if you misread one of those combinations, you would render the game unwinnable. Not to mention that process takes like 30 minutes. Where all the other players are sitting here, when are we going to star? And the GM's like, listen, I got to make three more decisions and then reference 50 more tables in this chart and then we'll be ready to go. And Calm also, down. functionally, the GM could probably kill the players anytime they wanted to. You really had to play it as a storyteller rather than as a, an opposition thing. And then somebody had the bright idea of, hey, what if we just put this all on an app? so that we don't have that. And then they came out with the second edition, which is brilliant. Yeah, which is strictly an upgrade. The first edition had a combat system that was awesome. In a weird way, you basically turned up a card to tell you what your attack was. For every hit, you got this little narrative story determining how you dealt with the monster. And it was so simple. The outcomes were so bizarre and unusual. And to be fair, the second edition kind of kept a lot of that. Because it's basically, true. you say, all right, there's a deep one in this room. I'm going to attack it. And the app says, well, are you attacking it with your bare hands? Or do you have a melee weapon? Do you have a gun? Do you have a spell? And then basically it will give you a little bit of text and tell you what to roll. That's now, true. If you're, you're using right, a gun, most of the time you're using agility. But sometimes you may wind up making an intelligence roll or willpower roll based on the context of the story. And what Joe was saying before about having the sort of exact capabilities and things of the bad guys somewhat hidden really makes that interesting because it's like, I think I can kill this thing. I mean, I know how many wounds it has. I know how much damage my gun can theoretically do, but it doesn't always work that way. It does a good job representing, right? Like as you transition from kind of like, let's call it a classic fantasy game where you are fighting goblins and you're a hero it gives you much more the feeling of you're a human and you're dealing with these totally unknown beings it's like hey if you're a hero in a fantasy realm goblins are just things like you're aware of them they're not surprising but like in mansions of madness it does a very good job of kind of evoking the feeling of oh there's there's this thing that just came out of the corner of the wall. I don't know what it is. I have a gun. I don't know if I'm going to be able to kill it or not. Nothing makes sense anymore. I'm in a mad universe that's crazy. It's so like it does a really good job of kind of like applying that feeling to the combat checks, which I think is really interesting. Well, and, and we're also missing the fact that combat is just one aspect of this game. Unlike almost every other game on this list, the majority of this game plays out with non-combat characters and their ability to solve puzzles and to do that 
the player who has control of that character physically has to solve a puzzle either with cardboard chits in the first edition or the much more user-friendly app on the second edition. And like you could go an entire mission without firing or hitting or attacking a single thing as a player. In theory. In I, theory, I haven't seen that happen. In theory, but like the game's normally pretty packed with enemies, so like that's Sure, be but like surprising. I could be playing a character who does not pick up a gun, who sure. does not even have a gun, who does not get a weapon at all. So then when my my friend who is the gunner goes down, I'm sitting there going Oh, God, I'm going to uh, die. <laughs> oh, but you might be a spellcaster who doesn't know what their spells do. That's also true. <laughs> Every spell has its own little deck, and you flip it over to find out what happens when you cast it. It's just evil. Yeah, there's a lot of neat random things. Um, I'm going to post a link in the show notes. I recently came across a talk that was given at the Game Developers Conference about the development of the Second Edition app, and it talks about a lot of the way they are able to obfuscate things because they're using an app. The initial scenario is like, you know, you're going to investigate this guy's house and you meet his butler and his butler helps you through the situation and turns out, shocker, the master of the house is part of a cult that's trying to summon a great old one. But some small percentage of the time you get to that final room, the master of the house is innocent and the butler is the one who's on the cult the whole time. And there are people who have played this game six, seven, eight times and have never seen that. Frank is making shock face now. <laughs> wow. Um, That's really good. There are, okay, some of the, there are some of the mystery ones that we've done, you know, where you're trying to figure out who the responsible party is. I remember there was one that we came close to solving and didn't. And I wanted to go back and see what we had missed, and everything was different. They're really able to make some things up. It's like uh, the movie Clue, right, where they had different <laughs> endings right. in the theater oh, yeah. exactly. randomly. And so you talk to the person, like, oh, I can't believe that. And they're like... No, that's not how that went at all. I'm also reminded there was um, a Monty Python album back when music came on physical vinyl records that had two grooves on side B. <laughs> and my brother had that album and had listened to it probably a dozen times. And then, you know, he flipped it over one day and put the thing down and started hearing stuff that had never been on the album before. <laughs> Blew his mind. Man. That's pretty good. My other favorite thing was the developer was talking about how there are certain events that happen at the end of every turn. And functionally, the app is drawing a card and doing a random thing. And a lot of them are saying, you know, no effect. It's just a little moody text and nothing happens. And apparently the playtesters were getting aggravated by that. So what they did was they changed the wording on those from no effect to no immediate effect. <laughs> and that suddenly made everybody really nervous, about it, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. I will say one thing that I do not love about the Mansions of Madness second edition is the campaign that you play determines the equipment that you start with. And then you have to divvy that up among players. And so it's like, all right, you get the gun, you get the spell book, you get the shoe. Good luck. Yep. We're all counting on you. Or like, I think one of the items is like, a human body part in a jar or something like that. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? You'll know when it comes up. Mm. Also, the miniatures, while the miniatures themselves are very nice, it is impossible to get them to stand their on their bases. Their bases are hyper fiddly. So speaking of games that will drive you to madness. <laughs> just Joe. Just me, apparently. Awful game. Terrible, Actually. terrible game. Uh, Shadows of Brimstone, released in 2014 by Flying Frog Productions, designed by Jason C. Hill. It's the kind of board game where you walk into a room and a hundred million enemies spawn and then your turn is over and then all the enemies kill you. That is this game. That sounds great. <laughs> that is this game all the time. That's, as far as I can tell, that's literally the only way this game happens. 
You walk into a room, a million enemies spawn, they kill you, and then the game is over and you start again. Sounds like poor tactical planning on your part. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So, I mean, this game does borrow heavily from a lot of the games that we've already talked about. Like, I was actually, in going through all this, kind of surprised to see how many different sources it kind of pulled mechanics from. Now, just a bit of history... Both Jason and myself kickstarted this thing back in the day, and it was almost like a textbook how not to kickstart something. It was a nightmare, and Flying Frog, for some reason, keeps using Kickstarter, even though they're terrible at it. Keeps working for them. They keep getting money, apparently. But I think the thing that really drew us to it was the theming. So this is set in the Weird West, where Cthulhu Mythos has infiltrated the setting and so you play generic wild west archetypes you delve into mines that have you know creatures of nightmares popping up and everything in the universe is starting to actually accept that information and so there are crystals which are being used as a power source but also cause the human body to mutate in grotesque ways and your characters can get grotesque mutations that are sometimes good and sometimes bad. Like, Hey, having a third arm is great when you want (laughs) to shoot things because you can have three pistols, (laughs) but also not having a mouth because your skin flap has covered it up could be real bad. So you sound like you hate this game less than Joe. No, this game is great. Like, the theming of this game is on it. and But but how is the gameplay? Well, so the gameplay definitely has, kind of like what Frank was talking about earlier, one character carries a lantern. If you move too far beyond the rest of the party, you will be outside of that lantern light where horrible things live. When you get to the edge of the map, you spawn a new room, which comes with some pre-generated characters. Uh, enemies that have a scripted method of coming into existence and you kind of work as a team to go from there. dump three million enemies in each spawn room and (laughs) they just murder whenever you walk in. Yeah, it's worth noting one of the things that sets this game apart is since it's in this, you know, unusual setting in the Wild West, while you're exploring the mines, you can also come across portals that take you to other worlds. These other worlds have different monsters, They have different special rules. So, for example, the Targa Plateau, which is like a futuristic frozen wasteland where you'll find, you know, ancient robots that shoot lasers at you. (laughs) And if you're stuck outside, you start taking damage because it's so cold. And, you know, then you find another portal that takes you to the jungles of Jargano. (laughs) You're fighting poisonous snake people. It has a lot of variety in the types of terrain that you go to, but they all start off in the mines because I think the backstory is basically they are mining dark stone from the mines and then it blew up and it opened all these portals portals to horrible dimensions. And that is really cool. The fact that you could start off in a Western mine and end up in a spaceship. Yeah. Or Sounds a, awesome. Or a quasi-World War One run by crazy mutants that use Darkstone to power their guns or tanks. But yeah, even then the structure of the dungeon pulls a lot from... Because the typical scenario, basically you generate some random fluff rooms and then get to the final room. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is totally and absolutely like Warhammer Quest, you know, which used that deck of cards to generate the rooms and lay out until you got to the final room based on whatever criteria the final room was. So are the scenarios specific or are you just kind of randomly generating a dungeon every time you go in? So they've got a set of five scenarios that are like, hey, somebody's been kidnapped. Please go rescue them. And then 
you determine like who that person is at the beginning of the scenario and that can affect what the reward is at the end of the scenario. So like, hey, if you go rescue the mayor's daughter, the mayor's going to pay you a bunch of money because he's filthy rich. But if you go rescue the clergyman, he'll give you a free cleansing of some Darkstone mutation or something like that. So the impetus for going into the dungeon is very generic and very samey. And like the campaign play is not the greatest campaign play because it's really just like, Hey, go, go do these missions until you get more power to do more missions. Yeah. There's no overriding narrative to any of it. It's just a series of scenarios you play in order or not. You can do them in random order if you want to. They do tend to get more difficult as you go in, but you know, just like any other good dungeon crawl, you're, you're gaining experience for defeating monsters. You're finding, you're finding loot. Um, one of the interesting things it does is at the end of every round, you're having someone roll to see if they hold back the darkness. There's a tracker that you have that as you go deeper into the mines, it's harder and harder to hold back the darkness. And if the darkness ever leaves the mines, you lose. And the town that you would normally go to to buy equipment, heal up, and get items is destroyed. Lovely. So you just lose your whole town phase because all the demons rampaging out of the mines that you didn't stop wrecked whatever city that was. So yeah, it's a keep moving mechanic. And again, I think in a lot of ways it's a great evolution of all the things that came before. You've got the timer, you've got some ideas, again, a lot from Warhammer Quest, and you've even got the town phase. One thing I do like about that is that your town can be destroyed. So like, you might go back to town and, hey look, the doctor's office has been destroyed. Okay, well, I guess we're not getting healed up this round. Cool. Um, and that's all randomized. Uh, they've expanded some stuff so that you can even have like adventures in town. Like yeah. you yeah. can get into a shootout in the middle of town. You could go into a bank robbery. Yeah, you can even have different sizes of towns or types of towns where it's like, this is a mutant town. If you have a mutation, you get a benefit here. Or, you know, this might be an anti-mutant town or this is a river town where it has much more options. Almost to a fault, a ton of <laughs> variability. Trying to store this game is... Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, this game does suffer a little bit from bloat. Just a touch. I have a giant multi-thousand card holder box to put all the cards in. I have two toolboxes full of miniatures, and I still don't have enough room for everything. And they've since taken the system and kind of reskinned it for a feudal Japan. I have it. It was a huge freaking box. Yeah, I mean, sure. So, so they go from Westworld to Samurai World? Mm -hmm. They did. Yeah, they did, basically. in fact. And I believe all of the components of the, are compatible. reverse compatible. Yep, they are. Everything they've done is compatible. This means some weird things. The characters themselves each have their own unique skills, feats, leveling up. But also there is a ton of loot, more than any game we've mentioned so far, even Descent, which has all the expansions. This has uncountable expansions. And the amount of loot that we obsessed over in our campaign when we did town quests is like terrifying. And that was the addictive part of the game was actually the town phases. The It felt very, very Diablo-ish mm -hmm. so that you're, you know, completely crafting, working on the plus two points on your weapon. And yeah. then the actual dungeon phase would take up only about two thirds of the time, if that. And that was mostly the scoring to make sure your build yep. worked. Uh-huh. So Diablo. You definitely come up with a very unique hero. Just between the equipment, the skill trees they have, they have branching paths where you can go down different types of, of skill builds for each of the different character types. And uh, the mutations add an entirely different dimension to it. I mean, we had a player <laughs> that had a dimensional portal in his chest. And whenever he rolled certain dice, an item or a monster would pop out of it. <laughs> so like... 
they're very memorable. In fact, uh, if you get too many muta- mutations, you just become a writhing mass of tentacles and die. So, like, you have to manage that that, <laughs> that aspect of the game. So apparently, if your name's not Joe, this is a decent <laughs> game and worth looking into. But Joes will not like it. That's correct. I'm a Joe. My first name's Joseph. What? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, everything I know has been turned upside down. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Brian didn't realize this is mostly Joe's podcast. No God. <laughs> Just kind of a final word for anybody who's looking to get into Don't this play game. It. Don't play it at all. I kind of have to agree with Joe. There is so much. Don't play it. Don't play it at all. With this game, that like having gotten in from the beginning, I'm like, cool. Yeah, this game is great. If I were to actually go and look up like, hey, what do I need to buy to play Shadows of Brimstone? It would be a little overwhelming. Mike, it's not dissimilar from when you're like, I want to go play Final Fantasy 15. And then you went onto the PlayStation store and was like, I don't understand. There's a hundred games here and they're all (laughs) called Final Fantasy 15. Which one is the game? Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing that happened. So I imagine that's what anyone who wanted to play Shadows of Brimstone. I went and looked at it on BoardGameGeek. I was like, Shadows of Brimstone. They're like, do you mean one of these four base games or one of these hundred million different expansions? Like, I want to play. What if I want to just play the game? Like, no. Do some homework. Yeah, Bitch. a little bit. You're not ready. Yeah, they made a really weird decision with the original Kickstarter with having two core sets. Yeah. Which is just bizarre. Like, yeah. I can't recall any other games that have done that. Maybe others have. But it was like they had too many ideas. And like, well, we can't put these all in one game. That'd be too expensive. Let's just release two core sets and then completely confuse our base as to which ones they want. But yeah, there are a ton of minis. And the game was surprisingly cheap at retail. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So, Mike, you said something to the effect that Flying Frog is really bad at Kickstarter. Would you like to... Expand on that a little bit. Well, so they had a I mean, in classic Kickstarter fashion, this one was incredibly late, incredibly stalled, but also they're still releasing things that they've promised in their first Kickstarter and have had like three cents that I can't even imagine how those are doing. The Hard Ribbon Fortress went a little better than the original Kickstarter. Yeah. At oh, least. good. They're they finished it. They shipped it. I've got it. Okay. Yeah. They did do some weird stuff with the first Kickstarter where, again, I think they suffer from an overabundance of imagination and excitement because they created the pledge levels in the Kickstarter starter they said okay it's coming with these miniatures and these sets and everything as they were releasing the stuff from the kickstarter they gave the kickstarter people options to say oh hey uh while you're working on this we came up with these other ideas with these other miniatures to add to this same set would you like to pay more money to get those and you know average kickstarter person like myself would be like hmm more stuff you say sure here's some money like that's weird that's not something i experienced with other kickstarters and they're also pretty bad about the uh, Kickstarter exclusive heroes, which really burns me because it's like the heroes are like the things that I always want because that gives you more options to play. Mm-hmm. Like I can take or leave extra monster packs. Who cares? But like the Forbidden Fortress had a Tradaran hero, which are like the World War One mutant people. I was like, oh, that's like my favorite world that they go to. Oh, you have to buy the Forbidden Fortress. That's like $100. I'm like, I don't, I don't really want the Forbidden Fortress. Yeah. I believe they also had the problem of they sold the game at one of the conventions before the Kickstarters oh, had I mean, it. Which like, makes oh, yeah. Kickstarter standard. backers very angry. Yeah, right. Like, it, it's just a textbook of here's what not to do. Our next game, I think, is in many ways the exact opposite of Shadows of Brimstone. It's one box that has everything in it. It's a big box. It's a big box, <laughs> and even Joe likes it. It's creators really like you as opposed to Shadows yes, of Brimstone. Yes, and they did the Kickstarter right. actively hate you. <laughs> what we're talking about is Gloomhaven. Dun, 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 yes. Dun, dun, dun. The 800-pound gorilla of recent gaming Kickstarters. 2017 Cephalofair Games, Isaac Childress is the designer, and uh, as I have probably mentioned before, this is 
currently sort of my favorite game ever. True that. It is a dungeon crawl with some legacy-ish elements. Unlike most of the others, it is not dice-driven. It is card-driven. Each character has their own deck of power cards that you can sort of sculpt to some extent as you're going through the game. And as you level up, you get more card options. You're each turn choosing a couple cards and... As a very broad general rule, you will use one of them to move and one of them to attack or do some other action. And as you use those cards up, you periodically are removing cards from the deck. So it's sort of a race against time for you to keep enough cards in your hand to keep going until the end of the scenario. You start with six available characters and there are another 11 that you can unlock throughout the course of the game. They all play very differently. Um, they each come with their own miniatures and they're all sort of secret until you find them. They all play so differently, right? Like, it is insane how different the characters are, right? Yeah. Like, they're just bonkers. Like, there's one where they summon a bunch of monsters and they do random things. There's one where you buff your allies. There's one where you're a healer. There's insane, right? Like, yeah, there are ones where you have persistent cards that sit down in front of you and keep giving you abilities until you do things. It's yeah, like, all 17 characters are really jaw-dropping. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Every time we open a new box, we're just like, huh, I have no idea what to do with this now. And the advancement of those cards that you can pick from as your character gets more powerful, like each of the classes has very clearly two or three different pathways that they could go down that would be extremely good. So, I mean, there's so much in that mechanic it's fascinating right because every time you level up it kind of sucks right because like, you unlock a new <laughs> yes. card but now it's like look at all my cards and pick which card i'm not gonna have anymore so i can oh, put no. this new awesome thing oh in. no yes exactly oh, no. like this new card is really good but i've got a working engine right now mm -hmm. that's really powerful yeah and every card's got a top and a bottom so you have to compare those you're like oh yeah, no you're be like, oh well hey i need to be good at movement but this new card doesn't give me movement so i'm removing a movement card now so that means i need to add a card in that has movement again oh god oh god math it's so weird because he did everything wrong i mean we compare it to brimstone which has the classic mechanisms all in the right order and everything and and this one, everything's completely different. Everything. Yeah. It was fascinating to watch because I kickstarted this fairly early in the process. And it was great watching it because it was clear from the beginning that this is either going to be the most awesome game ever or a truly spectacular train wreck. <laughs> and he just kept having cool ideas and putting them in. And I'm like, no, you need to stop at some point. But apparently, no, you don't. Because he's just did a brilliant job of balancing it all. The actual going into dungeons and fighting things with cards is amazing enough as a complete game on its own. Mm -hmm. But when you combine that with the sort of branching storylines that you've got, you've got event cards that are coming in whenever you retire or add a new character or finish an adventure, you're adding new event cards that'll happen in the future. I retired my character and then a few sessions later, he showed back up in an event card and said, hey, I need you guys to help me go do this thing. So it really gives this very cool sense of continuity and storyline through it. With a lot of uh, dungeon exploration games, um, sometimes they struggle with the feeling of character progression. Like sometimes, especially something like Castle Ravenloft, you never really feel like you're progressing your character unless you roll that miraculous 20 when you have uh, 5 XP. This game, you're constantly progressing your character no matter what you do. You're either getting XP to move them up so they can get more cards to choose from and get more health. You're moving them closer to retirement by accomplishing other missions. You're enhancing your, is it your reputation? Well, there's the city's prosperity, which yeah. is neat because prosperity, as the city gets better, you add more loot cards available to buy in the market, Yeah, which is fascinating. So I haven't seen a game that's got that constant feeling of progression always, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, but actually back to the dungeon parts, the AI is 
incredible. Every monster gets their own little eight card deck and they're mostly just variables on they'll do this thing but it'll be slightly different, a little more movement, a little less attack. Occasionally they'll have some kind of weird special attack that will throw you for a loop, especially the first time you see it. But even aside from them, they're kind of smart. They'll go after the closest person and then the person who went first. And the very first room of the very first dungeon puts you in a group of them and teaches you exactly what happens when you rush forward to strike the one guy that's close. And then they go and you die. I kind of like those AI cards because take, for instance, the Iron Golem. Traditionally, most of his cards are going to be high initiative, so they go slower in the turn. They're going to reduce the natural movement that the Iron Golem has that is public knowledge. So, like... 90% of the time, players can count on a few things to be true about an enemy. But then one card in that AI deck might be like, well, this time the Iron Golem books it, gets plus movement, and still hits like a Mack truck. And so not being able to count on when that card comes up is, again, you're operating on imperfect information, which adds in that difficulty spike and can put you in some really bad situation. I still remember the first time we fought a pack of dogs or wolves. Oh, gee. And it turns out that if you get more than one of those next to you, you're in for a bad day. Mm-hmm. And then the bosses, basically there is a single boss deck that in with all the regular attacks movement just has things like, special boss thing a special boss thing b and so each boss kind of becomes a puzzle that you need to solve on the fly because they have all their different powers and abilities the rules for how monsters act are often confusing the second edition writes them up a little more clearly but it's still difficult to figure exactly out what a monster is going to do there is an expansion for it which is going to be out any day now which is basically a character class and some scenarios around it like shipping any day now or? 30 oh, scenarios really soon like next month yeah or something. It's, it's in the very near future the, of course that doesn't have enough scenarios yeah i mean really. it will keep you going for a while <laughs> don't get me wrong i'll play more gloomhaven i like gloomhaven yeah, a lot. exactly and apparently he has just now started formally working on the next big box expansion the funny thing is about Cephalofair Games Kickstarters, they have the exact opposite problem of Flying Frog. I remember when that Kickstarter was going that he would just give these massive info dumps on how the game's production is going. But even in his more recent Kickstarters, he would release like tailored events that you could sit down and play through that were more like puzzles to figure out than a mission. But what a brilliant way to keep people interested in the game over a many months period of time. He actually did one other little expansion, which was the solo quests. Mm -hmm. And those are really interesting if you've played some of them. If not, just drag for that PDF and go for it because those are really puzzle-like. Some of them are incredible the bard who has practically no spoilers abilities to put a little bit of water under this fire the one downside of this game that i've encountered now once is that if you're not playing this game regularly my friend has a copy of this game that is partially played right so they did a couple scenarios it's in functioning unknown state we had a free evening like let's go play this game you like it let's get it going and i sat down with the box i was like well There's now so much stuff in this game, just in the base box, there's so much stuff in this game that like taking someone's copy that is partially played when you don't know the state and figuring out what that is, is so monumental of a task 
that I looked at it and I was like, oh, n- never mind. Oh, we let's can't do, do this. Let's do something else. <laughs> I don't have an hour to go figure all this out. Yeah, it definitely wants to be something that is regular played in campaign format. You can do standalone stuff with it, but... Yeah, because that's functionally how they were treating it. They were doing occasionally standalone stuff functionally. The game is definitely not meant for that, and it acts weirdly when you do it in that mode. Actually, we did it and swapped out people and characters. No, that that's fine. It's just like coming up to the box is like, well, now it's an unknown state. I need to figure out what what's going on. It's it was. Also, there is a digital version of the game which is currently in development. When they initially posted about it, it really kind of looked like it was sort of going to be an inspired by the board game. But the more they post about it, the more it's starting to look like a fairly faithful conversion of the physical box. So, Unlike other campaigns, though, this game actually handles players dropping in and out very easily. Oh, yeah. Big picture-wise, the characters are basically a mercenary group. They're kind of individuals, and they will just leave when they've accomplished what they want to. Right, and so I'm playing through this with my brother, and we have a fourth that may or may not join us on any given night, and when our fourth joins us, it's like he sits down and looks at the game, he's like, oh, I see that some things have been happening in the city, cool. But it's never really a problem of like, oh shit, I missed like a whole bunch of really pertinent information that now I don't know what's going on. It's like, oh, hey, look, we've now got more items to select from. And and now I'm fourth level. Right. And yeah, mixing a first level and eighth level character is not a massive spread in power yeah no it totally works and yeah you basically average do some quick math and you set your level for the for the particular dungeon based on that and it all totally works Mm -hmm. and even if you have a player that drops out it's expected that when you restart your next character they're going to be starting at a lower level and that happens yeah in terms of value for the amount of money that they're charging even originally and now it's been on sale after sale after sale for whatever reason you have probably, uh, what, 100 hours of gameplay in there easy? No more, I think. More than that? Yeah, we took us a year to finish. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know of any game where you get that much value. Like, I don't think it's possible to find. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like it's like buying Descent and five, six expansions for mm-hmm. your 120 bucks. Yeah. So we talk about games that are getting a lot of play for me right now. Swords and Sorcery easily fits that. Released in 2017, published by Ares Games, designed by Simon Romano and Nunzo Surfas. I think that's Simone Romano. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know, man. Listen, (laughs) lots of names. My Saturday game has been slowly playing through the campaigns, right? So we just finished the first box and we just finished Arcane Portal, which is kind of like a in-between story between the second box. And I like the heck out of this game. It has a lot of very similar ideas. There's a very clear time limit on the campaign that I don't think we've ever hit, but we've certainly come close a couple of times. Each independent mission has a stack of cards that when you run through, the mission is just over. The game does some pretty clever things. You set up a map and you see some or most of the map at the start of the game and they'll put on a bunch of cards and chits that like when you walk over to them, you go to a storybook and kind of read some descriptive text, which is kind of how the story gets delivered to you and it'll almost inevitably you'll walk into a story card and it'll spawn a bunch of enemies and then the enemies will start doing a bunch of things. All the heroes feel like they have lots of stuff to do, right? They're they're all extremely different, right? They play really differently. Each hero has their individual kind of set of special abilities that you kind of select from. Each hero can be either good or evil or neutral, depending on the specific hero. 
generally the campaign is like, hey, you're playing all good or neutral or all evil or neutral, but we, we mix it up because we don't super care. I really like the game. I think it does a really excellent job of kind of following the logical DNA of a dungeon crawl. You're going to go adventure outside sometimes. Sometimes you're in a city. Sometimes you're actually in a dungeon. In the first boxed expansion, they started doing a thing where you'll walk up to a section and then you'll like add new tiles to the map, which was really clever the first time we saw it. I was like, oh man, that's really cool. The map starts smaller and kind of grows over the course of the game, which was pretty sweet. So it does a lot of really clever things, I think. I haven't gotten to play this one yet. I remember when I first looked at it, looked at the rules and stuff, it looked like it had the potential to be extremely fiddly, (laughs) which I mean is not out of character for Dungeon Quest games in general. Um, But I mean, it looked like it might exceed my fiddliness tolerance. But again, that's just looking at the rules. Talking to someone who actually played the game, it would probably be a lot more comprehensible. It's not that bad. The rule book is bad. bad. The rule book <laughs> is aggressively bad. The rule book makes the game feel way more fiddly than it is. Yeah. Okay. Like, by almost an order of magnitude, I would say. <laughs> the rule book is, it's got a bad, bad I'll, rule I'll book. stop looking at that. Then. There's uh. also a lot of subsystems that you don't yes. get to until far later in the game. Way yeah. too many, yeah. I really enjoy the character progression, but there are a couple of really odd artificial caps on things in the game. So, for instance, if you purchase just the base box, you will only ever take your character up to level four because rules as written says you cannot go past level four in this campaign. Now, clearly, if you want to ignore that, you totally can bring your own fun. But also the items also kind of bug me at some point because looking through them, this is a similar problem that Descent has. All of the items are just more dice or different special powers. And there's only so much they can do with that. But there are very clearly one or two items meant for specific characters. And there's not a lot of incentive to go outside of those recommended items that you find. So like, my character opens a chest and finds a bow. Well, that's clearly for the archer, but it may or may not be slightly better than the bow they already have. And it just... There's not a lot of variety there. I kind of wish there was more, and I'm hoping that with more expansions, that problem will fix itself. Yeah, the incremental upgrades of things is definitely very obvious. Because of the way the dice system works, like it has its own set of dice, and so functionally, you roll some number of red dice and some number of blue dice whenever you're doing an action. And red dice are kind of more damagey and blue dice are the only dice with defensive and so like when you're attacking with blue dice they're less attacky but mike's not wrong functionally you're just rolling a handful of dice and then referencing those symbols and adding up all the hits and doing a thing there's not a huge amount of real estate for difference there maybe your lightning bolt will do this thing or maybe three lightning bolts will do this thing that's kind of it that is definitely like the end of where the items can go it's really the design limit of the system. The system just kind of can't go beyond Sort of that. like, here's some more pluses. Right. I mean, your character will quickly hit apotheosis, which, I mean, is totally fine. My character, for example, carries a sword that grants some defensive bonuses and a sword that has more aggressive bonuses. And I will switch those out depending on the situation that we're in. But I found those items after like the third mission and haven't switched them out since, which feels not great. To be fair, we did kind of ruin the item system a little bit in that game for our own fun. So like we looked at the game and said like, hey, you know, getting gold isn't fun. So we took all the gold cards and we're like, hey, we want to see more items. So we give players two cards and let them pick from one. And like, it has a huge effect. Yes, yes, it does. The number of items that you see. I think if we had gone a little slower, 
but we were like, we don't want to go slowly. We just want to have a bunch of fun. We want to see all and, the stuff. And see all the stuff. Yeah. Right. And like, that's a specific kind of fun. Towards the end of the Portal campaign, because we had made those decisions, we had very deeply delved through kind of like all the possible item cards. You had all the good stuff. We just had all the good stuff. Trying to think of the things that struck me as interesting about the game's mechanics. And there were two. One, the AI is a throwback to the D&D Ravenloft. Yeah. But with more personality on the monsters, you know, they would have a preferred target and they really suddenly they'd go after like the guy with the most gold and some bonkers stuff like that. They also have interesting, they may have like an all the time power and they have different benefits. Like if the monsters control the space. Yeah. Their scripts are normally pretty specific. If the enemies control the space the monsters move to, it will do one thing or it might do something different if they don't control the space. Like it'll make different decisions. So the scripts are, are normally pretty intensive compared to some of the other games of the ilk. Yeah, the other thing that struck me as interesting is um, that most of your powers are cooldown-style powers. You know, mm-hmm. World of Warcraft, pretty much that's for everything. They have so many turns that happen. Yep. So you're often having to juggle, okay, this turn, the next turn I can do this, two turns later I can do this. And so it feels like a very, you're having to do a lot more timing and thinking ahead a yep. turn or two, which is kind of unusual. So Joe, as far as the giving yourself more item options, that kind of thing, if you were to replay through the campaign again, do you think you'd do it the same way? I don't think so. Okay. It does a bad job of putting its foot forward in the first mission. The first mission is really hard, like aggressively hard. Like the second mission is actually, I think, easier than the first mission because the first mission's So functionally, at the end of every mission, you fight a red monster or a purple monster. Those are the big bosses, but normally you fight a red monster. And in the first mission, the final boss is the red gremlin. And the red gremlin is hyper, hyper deadly. He's more deadly, I think, than the next couple red monsters. So it did a bad job of putting its first foot forward. We were like, cool, we think we're going to die a bunch based on this first <laughs> mission. So there's some optional rules in the rule book we're like hey we're gonna play with some of these optional rules and like, i think going back we probably didn't need to do that the first mission is just really hard so i think going back i don't think i would really do any of the game modifiers that we've played through now that i've played through it once like you just skip the first mission i imagine i'll play with you and jason and i think we'll probably not do any of those things okay and we'll just accept that in the first mission everything is the worst and we'll just move <laughs> on with our lives honestly what you do in the first mission is you don't level up right i think that's the big thing is you don't oh, level yeah. up because we level up and then if you die, you lose a level and you spend a bunch of soul stones. But like once you get to the second mission, you now have enough soul stones that that is now a thing you can do. But in the first mission, like when I first played it, we had two people level up and then they both died in the first mission. We lost a bunch of soul stones. We're like, well, shoot, you're back this to square is gonna one. Be awful yeah. for the rest of the game, and like it evens out after you get a couple pieces of equipment and everything. It doesn't get as bad. So I think if I play through again with you guys, I definitely think that almost all the modifications we made probably don't need to be made. And I'm excited to play through it again because we have a bunch of characters that we haven't played through. It had a bunch of expansions. There was a bunch of character expansions, right? So like more options when you play. Right? And I went and got all those and they're all pretty cool. Do you get more loot cards with those? A few. A, a tiny, oh, tiny man. amount. Okay. But again, those loot cards are very... This is intended for the bard. This is intended for the barbarian. Now, again, I think having that skewed opinion of this game where we played with a modified treasure rule is that in the actual game, it is very much of a, hey, cool, I opened this chest and found a firebrand. Well, I guess I'm going to use this now until I find something different. 
So it's very much a you get what you get and you're mm-hmm. just going to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. It has a very you get what you get feel to it, which, again, I kind of just wish there was a little bit more variability into the game's items. Do you have the option, if you get something that's not very useful, like sell it in town and... You can sell uh, all treasure items for gold. We, we never have done party, it, but you can totally sell them. Sure. But I think it's like 25 gold. Can you not buy items with the gold? I know you said you took the gold out of the, the treasure deck. You can buy items, but like there are not a ton of them. So uh, it goes back to the Shadows of Brimstone problem where like, hey, the items that you can buy in town are just worse than the items that you can get in the treasure deck. Now, it does do something interesting that you can, for a single mission, make the items that you buy in town better than what they baseline are. They call it a forging system. So it's like, hey, I went in town and bought this longsword. Cool. Well, I could pay 50 gold for a mission to make it a better longsword. And it's only that for that one mission? Mm-hmm. Only for that one mission. Hmm. There are some relicy items that you can even pay experience points to make them better for a single turn. I guess it's the intention that you will have so much gold that you don't mind blowing on. Yeah, okay. totally. Right. We have totally. an infinite amount of gold. We reached the point during Arcane Portal where I said, okay, cool, this monster drops gold. And the guy who was dealing with the gold says, cool, we don't have any more chits for gold. <laughs> I was like, cool, he doesn't drop any gold then. We, we have move on. all the gold. Like I said, I think our house rule kind of broke that system a little bit. Yeah. Because we had the same problem with experience points where we're like, hey, cool, there are just no more experience points in this box. Yeah, I think if we lost levels when we died, that would be a much more interesting conversation. I like the game a lot. Like, I don't disagree with Mike that there's some item availability issues that's kind of endemic to the system, much like a lot of adventure games, right? The storytelling is really good, mm-hmm. yeah. and you definitely feel like you're a big damn hero going on an adventure and, like, trying to stop these great cataclysmic events. So it, it does a really good job in kind of storytelling in general. So Oh, yeah, the storytelling is superb. That is kind of our main evolutionary line of dungeon crawls that we wanted to talk about. There are definitely a few sort of odd little offshoots that we wanted to discuss that we think deserve some honorable mention time. The first one of which is called Catacombs. It was published in 2010 by Elzra Corp, designed by Ryan Amos, Mark Kelsey, and Aaron West. And this is a dungeon crawl. You have all your folks playing characters and one person playing the bad guy, and there are different monsters, and you go through various rooms, and you can buy equipment and get your way to the boss. Except that it's also a dexterity game. Basically, your characters are little wooden discs. And if you are playing the elf, for example, you get a little arrow disc and you flick it at the monster. And if you hit the monster, then you hit the monster. And the fighter type, basically, you flick that character directly at the monster. And if he hits a thing, then that's where he is. The fighter throws himself bodily at the (laughs) monsters. Yep, yep pretty accurate actually if you ask me (laughs) it's definitely a dungeon crawl that does not use any of the traditional dungeon crawl mechanics i'm terrible at dexterity games but i still like it because it's fun and silly there's a new version of it that i think is an improvement on the art (laughs) oh definitely it's colored (laughs) they've done a skirmish version with like outdoors with city and buildings added some extra obstacles they're just a latinus cube very important all games oh wait all games is actually a physical (laughs) cube That's great. <laughs> it's actually, you make it from Jello. Oh, you wow. just put it in a little cubicle mold. Sadly, oh. people won't play this game with me. Aww. You're too good at it's it. It's dexterity. I'll yeah. play it with you. 
Brian, we actually played this game back when I first met you at your place, and then we never played it again mm-hmm. after that because of all the new and different and cool things that yep. came out. And then we started doing research for this episode, and you brought that, and I'm like, I, this game was really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm now hyper excited about getting the new edition to play with my niece and nephew because I think this one's also a dungeon elf that's really kid friendly. Sure, yeah, it's a breeze to teach. Hey, Dexter games are great for that kind of thing. Is this the new one that has the fence around the board? so you don't lose discs all over the place. Yep, there is in the re-release of the game, definitely somebody somewhere sent in some complaints about lost pieces or getting like a, a thing in the eye because it included a fence that you put around so that none of your things can go flying off the table. With the new edition, you still need to put the stickers on the wooden oh, yeah. discs oh, yeah. yourself, nope. right? Oh, yeah. No, no the, avoiding that. That was the least fun part of the <laughs> game setup, but you yeah. only need to do it once. But instead of pencil drawings, it's guanchi art. Yeah. So. And not only that, but the boxes way better as well, because the original releases box is bland at best. Yes. It is a textured background with the word catacomb on it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the game I brought in was Super Fantasy Ugly Snouts Assault, although there's a second base set. This is 2013 from Golden Egg, designed by Marco Valtriani, and it's a game I've been fascinated with for a while. You can find it in Closeout for like 10, 12 bucks. But it has standees, so no miniatures, and plays really fast. Uh, one of the There's a couple of unusual things about it. For example, you're given a pool of action dice at the start of each round, and you choose how many dice you want to roll as your action, and the number of symbols of uh, the number of symbols that are rolled determine how good you are at that action. And as well, there's some things will let you roll a certain number of dice. So if you roll uh, any of the stars, that's equal to your skill in that particular type of thing. You know, basically bashing, movement, whatever. So you're always just rolling dice, deciding how many you want to do each turn. The other unusual thing is more like a MOBA. The You level up in the middle of an adventure, and you'll actually level up up to six levels over the course of a little 90-minute game. So you're constantly going through and tweaking your character. And the next round, you start over level one. This gives the game a really fast progression and it plays really, really quickly. It's also really simple to teach. Pretty much once you understand the idea that you're rolling as many dice as you want and taking that action, movement and everything are all a target of six or whatever the defense of the critter you're trying to hit. And you could almost play from that description. It doesn't look like it's particularly campaigny. It's just kind of a, a uh, you go in and do a thing. A there's a linked story, but it's really just a campaign. Okay. But there's loot, you know, there's breaking barrels, opening chests. That sounds like fun. Yeah. As we kind of think about the natural evolution of Warhammer Quest all the way out to modern day, right? I think it's probably worth talking about Warhammer Quest Silver Tower, which was released in 2016 by Games Workshop Limited, uh, designed by James M. Hewitt. And yeah, this is weird because Games Workshop had had people just coming to them all the time asking, so when are you going to reprint Warhammer Quest, huh? And so they did something completely different. And they did Warhammer Quest Silver Tower, bundled it together with some glorious Age of Sigmar miniatures, and did a very different co-op dungeon crawl. The structure is a campaign with a paragraph book where you have eight missions, 
that are mostly randomly generated with a final encounter and a mid-dungeon encounter, which would lead you to building a giant amulet. The interesting part is they created their own completely different system. Every character, and there are a ton of characters, especially if you buy extra miniatures from Mm -hmm. your local Games Workshop store, at the start of your turn, you roll five or fewer dice if you've taken wounds, and then you can assign those dice to what you want to do that turn. You may have, if you get a six, you can teleport somewhere. Five or six may throw a fireball. Lower numbers, you might be able to re-roll a different die if you just spin that (coughs) die, etc. And so it's all kind of a weird pre-ordained luck where you can kind of see what you're going to be able to do at the start of your turn instead of rolling dice to figure out what you're doing. And I've noticed a trend in dungeon crawls that that whole luck thing is gradually being trimmed out, with, especially with Gloomhaven, which is all card-based and pretty closely fixed damage. But it's a pretty amazing game. We have, over the course of the podcast and in personal conversations, we give Games Workshop a lot of flack over a lot of things, and in many cases with good cause, but their miniatures and their production values are always top-notch. Yeah, the miniatures in this game and are they're gorgeous. Beautiful. They're beautiful, yeah. Yeah. They've actually done a sequel to this that is one versus many yeah. and includes a weirder campaign mode with a fixed dungeon that you go through in sections, as well as a Warhammer 40k kind of reboot of this idea that's called Darkstone Fortress. Yeah. And I want them all. I'm far more interested in the 40k stuff. That's I didn't know that existed. Another one that we looked at that a couple of us have, but we haven't really gotten to the table yet is called Alone. It came out in 2016 from Horrible Games by Andrea Crespi and Lorenzo Silva. And this takes the standard one versus many dungeon crawl and kind of turns it on its head. There is basically a single hero who is alone, hence the name, and there are multiple bad guy GM players who are sort of collectively making his life miserable. Pretty much they're cooperative. I would like to play it because I'm interested in seeing how it works out in practice. But conceptually, it's kind of cool. What a good twist on the 1v mini dungeon crawl, though, because like oh, yeah. that changes the power structure of like Yeah, that single everything. hero should be a badass. Yeah. It's an interesting twist. I haven't played it yet to decide whether it's a good one. There's some other things going on. I've looked through the rules really closely because I found a copy. And for one thing, the one starts off with basically one tile. No idea where in the dungeon he is, but it's a fixed dungeon with two levels, and he doesn't know where he is. Two levels? Yes, two levels. That's so cruel. And there's (laughs) elevators, and so the the base game comes with two double-sided boards that can be either level, and then the Kickstarter had an additional board that is double-sided. So it could be one of, in essence, six different levels that he starts on, and the level above or below him could be one of six different additional levels. Meanwhile, the uh, GMs or whatever have both boards. They know what the entire dungeon looks like, and they're moving counters around to represent all the monsters and spawning them. They tell him, you know, oh, you hear something spawn to the east. You don't know how far east, above, (laughs) below. And so he's got this very tiny tiny view of the world, no idea. And there's all sorts of stuff going on around him. And so the level of paranoia in the game is supposed to be really high. One thing I did read about it is like the single hero only sees that one tile at all. Like No, they do see more than I thought when they left the tile, the tile that goes away. They keep a few (coughs) tiles, but not many. Okay. Yeah. So it's a rolling, rolling visibility. Yeah, another thing that's interesting is there are no GM turns. The GMs get cards occasionally. And they're all reactions. So as the hero does this type of action, it'll have, oh, you can play this after the hero does this type of action. I'm opening a door and all three of them go, aha. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like Space Hulk almost kind of, where it's like there's hidden movement in that and there's not multiple GMs working against you. But like it feels kind of like that where you're like walking around this place. You don't really know where anything is. Yeah, but very different type of monsters. There is a very alien-y kind of thing going there. 
But yeah. Seems to me like the aliens motif is the new hotness in board game design. We've gotten several I'm lost in space on a ship with a monster games recently. Yeah, Nemesis, which we <laughs> decided not to talk about, but you should play it. Oh, we did. We, we enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, you know, there are people at the other end of this. Yeah, we're not really just talking for the five of us here. It's weird. I forget the listeners today. But we love our three listeners. <laughs> Dude, Especially... stop saying that. There's more than that. Especially you, number one. You know, you who, know you who you are. are. You're number one in our hearts. And then we, by which I mean Frank, also wanted to talk about one more game, which has <laughs> yes! been consuming his waking thoughts for a long time and is now, in theory, shipping real soon now. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> it arrived in Indiana, just in time for the flooding. Oh, good. Oh, I'm good. sure it's perfectly good. fine. So, oh, so if you get die. your copy, it's got a little bit of water damage on it. His copy is going to arrive at the local post office, and then there's going to be a rain of locusts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This is the game that literally will not ever release. It's been, what, three years in the making now? People in Europe have it. If it actually gets sure out, that's do. the sign of the apocalypse. Madara doesn't do anything amazing. It's just all of it. It's one of those big, giant gloomhaven-y. The thing it does best, though, is its adventure book, which is 450 pages <laughs> of scenarios, text, and a giant anime theme and a lot of rules. It also includes crafting, which means you can tweak and manipulate your weapons. Apparently, the character customization can take a couple hours huh. for someone who gets obsessed on just oh, tweaking their character. So basically, this is just somebody who said, every time I have an idea, I'm just putting it in the game. Oh, totally. Just, just keep putting more stuff in the game. Is this the one that also has the audio book that wasn't like yes. something they announced? It's like, man, I'm just going to do that now because why not? And they got a, a real professional audio reader. And he's reading the whole 450 she, page book. Oh, she's reading the whole 450 page book. Well, no. I mean, part of it's the adventure, but all the intro text. And you can do the setup while you listen to the audio. <laughs> or the character creation, that, you know, for the next few hours. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it has a very gloom haven y kind of feel in that either it's going to be a good game or it's going to be a giant cluster. And mm -hmm. the distance between the two is obviously very small Fingers reading the crossed. rules it's gonna be a good game i hope so it may be great it won't be gloomhaven because it's pretty typical it follows pretty closely on descent and that kind of model sure uh except for crafting and just the giant sprawl of it that's fascinating because like the way you describe it it sounds like it's almost going to have the opposite problem that we had with mansions of madness first edition where like hey the gym's making a bunch of decisions and 45 minutes later okay cool ready play now oh no no it's a uh, fully co-op oh okay and they're hiding a lot of stuff in the book under red revealer things <laughs> so you don't get to see everything you only get to see it if you do this huh. red revealer yeah <laughs> oh nice and there's a lot of hidden cards there are three hidden card decks uh, for things that get added to the game as you go hmm. so there's a little bit of legacy stuff going why not I mean, yeah. I look forward to when my copy arrives, maybe someday. It's going to be a giant blender of Dungeon Crawl goodness. Yep. Yeah, totally. So that's about all we have as far as Dungeon Crawls. We've probably overlooked some of your favorites. If we have, please put something in our comments. You can find our webpage, uh, centerboardgames.com, and uh, all the other things are referenced off of there. We are starting to get some iTunes reviews, which we really appreciate. Thank you, those of you who have put those in. And if you haven't, and you find the things we say even vaguely amusing, maybe go on to iTunes and tell some other people that, because it helps us a lot. In the meantime, we're going to keep playing games. We're going to keep talking about games. And if nothing else, you will hear from us in a month or so. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. 
Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. <laughs> it was like.